So uh, we have been going through a series uh, on the church, talking about what our identity is, who we are, what does it mean to be the church, what is God's purpose for us. And each week we've been kind of looking at a different analogy that scripture gives us talking about how we are the body of Christ and all members of one another. We're all working together according to the gifts the Spirit gives us, how we are a household of faith, how we belong to God's house. We'll hit on that a little bit more today as well. How we are the bride of Christ, all right, how we are are the bride and that Jesus loves us and sacrifices for us and, and leads us. And this week we're going to continue but also finish up our series on the church talking about another analogy that scripture gives us to define who we are as a people. And it's also going to inform what our purpose is. And that is that we are the temple of God. And so if you have your Bibles, uh, we're going to be looking at two key passages today. The first is going to be in the book of Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians chapter 2. So you can... uh, Go there and use your bulletin maybe as a bookmark. The second place we'll be looking is 1 Peter chapter 2. But we're going to begin uh, in Ephesians 2. But before we look at what Paul says we are as the church of God, it's actually sometimes important to look back uh, at what we were before. This is something that Paul does actually pretty frequently in Scripture. He'll go back and he'll say, hey, I want you to understand where you are right now with the Lord. I want you to see the blessing, the goodness, the greatness of what God is doing in you. And if I'm going to show you that, I first need to look back at what you were before God entered the picture. Before God began his work of grace in your life. And sometimes when you're able to like look and compare, you're like, oh, right? Wow. And, and, and so Paul does that actually pretty frequently in his letters. And that is what he's going to do here. Paul is writing to the Ephesians, largely a Gentile audience, which means they were not Jewish in origin, okay? And this is what he writes in Ephesians chapter 2. I'm actually going to go back to verses 11 and 12, so you can look there if you have it. If not, just, just listen. He says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by that which is called circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. He's basically saying people called you, Jews used to call them the uncircumcised people because the Jews were circumcised. The Jews are making a distinction. He says, remember in verse 12 that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's thick, right? That is, that is, Paul is laying it on. He's saying, Gentiles, do you remember what life was like for you before Christ? And Paul says, let me remind you. Because these were probably largely pagan people. They worshipped false gods. They worshipped false idols. They had no connection, he says, with God and no connection with God's people. You were outsiders. You were strangers. Have you ever been an outsider you all have been to middle school, so yes, you all at one point in time have felt like, man, I, I don't belong. You ever been to a wedding where like you knew like one person, like the groom or the bride or something, and you're like, I don't know who to talk to, or I'm just, I'm just here. I don't. We've all probably been in those situations, and at best in those situations, you feel like 
a guest. Oh, hey, welcome. You're kind of there. They tolerate you. You know, they're nice to you. But you know, you like, you don't know any of the jokes. You're not in any of the end stories. You're not part of any of the conversations. They're polite to you. That's on a good end, right? But sometimes you're in a situation where you're like, I, I, I'm not an insider and they don't like me, right? Paul is drawing this out. He says, you weren't just like an outsider culturally. He says, you, Ephesians, you were alienated from God and God's people. And I, I really want to, and he uses this very stark language, the very last phrase that he uses, which I think should really like stick. He says that they, they, have, they had no hope and they were without God in the world. Some of you Christians right now, maybe you can look back at your life before Christ and you're like, yep, yeah, that sounds about right. Without hope and without God in the world. Maybe some of you, you don't quite feel that way. Maybe you came to Christ at an early age and you didn't really feel like, you know, you had this like long laundry list, this terrible history of running from God. You came to Christ at a pretty early age. Maybe you were raised in the church. And so that doesn't feel like your experience. Maybe there are some of you who, who you're not sure where you're at with the Lord or you, are not, you would not consider yourself a believer in Christ. And you're saying, I don't really know. If, maybe that's how you feel. Maybe you feel like you don't have hope. Or you don't feel like you have God. Maybe you do. But I think that we should take seriously. Remember, this, this, is, this is God's assessment. This is what God is saying is true of those who don't have his son. Who don't know him through Jesus Christ. So I think we should take note. We should take seriously what God's word is saying here. He says that before Christ, if you're a Christian, or if you're outside of Christ, still unbelief, the description is it's a life without hope. Ultimate hope. I mean, there may be things you're looking forward to. You may have some sort of comfort and security in, 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 you know, in your job or your status. Or maybe you just have a generally comfortable life here in Southern York County or, or Northern Baltimore County, wherever you might live. But that's where your hope ends, really. Apart from Christ. He says there's no hope in heaven for you. There's no interest in the Lord. There's no expectation of forgiveness for you. You have no home with God, nor he with you. In fact, for a person who doesn't have Christ, Paul says that. That such a person is without God in the world. Man, what a dreadful thought. Christian, do you remember, for you who have been Lord, do you remember what life was like without the Lord? I do. This is the interesting thing. For many people, like at the time, you, you weren't thinking in those categories, right? For, for most people who, if you're right now walking and, and you don't have the Lord in your life, may, God already maybe doesn't make very much of a difference in your life. And so you don't really notice. It's like you don't know what you're missing. But if you have the Lord, you've been walking with the Lord Jesus, the Holy Spirit dwells within your life, you have hope and joy and peace which transcends all understanding, you're like, I can't imagine not having the Lord in my life. And he's writing these Ephesian Christians, Paul is, and he's reminding them what life was like before God. He says, you were without hope, you were without God in the world. How dreadful. And for those of you who have the Lord now, you can say, He is my God and I am His child. It makes all the difference. Take everything else. Take my health. Take my life. Take my riches. Take my family. Take my job. Take everything. Just please don't take Jesus from me. 
Paul writes to believers and says that they used to be separated not only from God, from God's people. They were outside of the covenants of promise. Without God in the world. And I, and I pray that's, that's none of you today. I pray that that is not your experience. That, you, that you're not in a place where you don't have faith in Christ. But God says that there is actually hope. Because it, I read verses 11 and 12. But Paul loves to say he's not going to stop there. He's not going to hang there too long. And he's going to say, well, what changed? What changed for the Ephesians? How'd they go from not knowing God, having no hope, being aliens and strangers to God and his people? Verse 13, it's very, very simple. He says this, but now Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's the difference. Just the blood of Christ. Jesus, the son of God who laid down his life to draw near to God those who were far off. And that's what changed for the Ephesian Christians, and that what is for for you, Christian, that's what's changed for you. And what can change for any of you who will believe? Christ brought you near by his blood. He died to wipe away the guilt, the shame, the hostility that exists between God and man, so that whoever trusts in Jesus to make them right with God no longer is without God in the world, but rather God says he makes his home with us. And that's, guys, what it, all of God's covenant promises always come down to this. I will be your God, and you will be my people. That's what it all comes down to, and it's all because of the blood of Christ. 1 John 2.23 says this, No one who denies the Son has the Father. There is no God. There is no access to God the Father if you deny His Son. But then he says the inverse. But whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. And it really is that simple. Do you have the Lord Jesus? Is He your Lord? Is He your Savior? If you have the Son, you have the Father and the Spirit. And He has you as His child. Forgiven and free, filled with hope, welcomed home. And so Paul writes to the Ephesians. And he's going to talk about their identity. And he says, let me just start off by reminding you of what you were before Christ, without hope, without God in the world. But now, God is your God because of the blood of Christ. And so we look, please, with me at Ephesians 2.19, and he, and he talks about where they're at. He says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself, being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Amen? So he says, first of all, you're no longer strangers and foreigners. Christian, you are no longer a stranger or foreigner to God, his promises, or his people. He's writing the Ephesian Christians or impressing this truth on their hearts. You're no longer a stranger. You're no longer a foreigner. Uh, once you were strangers from God, like the rest of humanity, you didn't belong to his people. You didn't have any hope or interest. But now we've talked about that. You are brought near by the blood of Christ. And all the riches of God's precious promises are yours. Yet the church is filled with spiritual ref refugees, you might say. 
People who have fled the world and have come. And, you know, none of us once belonged here, right? None of us at, grew, were born into the kingdom of God that, the, you know, naturally. We all are refugees here. We didn't used to belong, but now we do. All because of Christ. And now that we are here, we get to experience the benefits and blessings of being with God's people. And so he goes through, and the first thing he says is, hey, you're no longer strangers. Let me tell you what you are. He says, you belong to the household of God. There's really kind of two metaphors here. He says, you're members of the city, right? Or sorry, citizens of the city, and you're members of the household built on the apostles and the prophets with Jesus as the cornerstone. He says, you belong to God's family. Not as a servant, not as a guest, right? But as a family member, right? You've all, many of you have seen Downton Abbey, right? You know the difference. You know, there's the upstairs, downstairs thing, right? There's the, there's the family that lives there, right? And they're, you know, they have, you know, they have all, all the rights and privileges of, um, of living in Downton Abbey. Then you have like the servants, and actually their lives are more interesting half the time, you know? But he says, you're not, servants like that and God like you are sons and daughters brothers and sisters you are a family member in the house of God you're not a guest you're not a servant we're all servants of God but what's the difference a guest or a servant um, has permissions in the household but a family member has rights right if I go over to uh, uh, let's see here if I go over to George's house today right and I say George I'd like you to have me over for lunch he might say no because it's such short notice, but he, they're very hospitable. I'm sure they'd say, sure, Mac, come on over, bring your family, right? And they would treat me with great hospi- hospitality, I'm sure. They'd give me lunch. They'd, you know, let me sit on their couch. They didn't, you know, we, we could hang out and talk, you know, but, you know, I would have permission to do certain things, right? But at some point they'd be like, okay, Matt, it's time to leave. All right, we want to take a nap. You know, they, they would eventually expect me to leave, right, because I am a guest. I couldn't be like, well, George, that was great. I'm going to go ahead and take a nap in your bed. And uh, could you just, you know, clean up while I'm, while I'm taking a nap? Like, there, I, I wouldn't have the right to do that because I'm a guest, all right? Noah could do that, though. <laughs> He's a family member. He belongs there. It's his home. Christian, you're not a guest in God's house. You're a son your daughter. And together, we are the family of God, brothers and sisters, belonging to God and belonging to one another. We have all the, the rights and benefits of belonging to God's household. God is our Father, so you know what? All the promises that God makes in Scripture, those are ours. All the, God hears our prayers. Outside of Christ, there's no promise He's going to hear your prayers, but He hears your prayers. You have a brother and sister in Christ. You you have a glorious inheritance in the kingdom of God reserved in heaven for you with your name on it. You have the Holy Spirit of God. Rights and privileges that are yours in Christ. He says you are part of God's household. He goes on to say that, that, and he kind of mixes metaphors here, that not only do we belong to the household, it's like we're also kind of like a building itself, right? So we go from being the household to the house. He's going to mix metaphors. We ourselves are a house for God. More specifically, we are being built up to, as it says, we are in whom the whole structure is being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, right? People have always wanted to uh, 
make houses for their gods. You notice that it's kind of like a human instinct, right? We build houses for ourselves, you know, and all throughout different, all different kinds of religions, people want to like house their gods. Even the ancient Greeks want to be like that mountain. That's, that's where the gods are, right? You know, or, they, or we like have a, or they have a shrine or a temple. We have a temple building instinct, right? We want to locate where gods are at, like on the map, right? God has always, uh, been against that idea. God who made the heavens and the earth does not live in any temple made by people. In Acts 7, uh, 48 through 50, Stephen's preaching says, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What kind of house would you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hands make all these things? Hey guys, God does not live in this gym. <laughs> okay? does live somewhere but it's not in the gym it's in the people and when you leave he's going with us he's certainly here when we're gathered together right it's not as though god picks the prettiest building or a a great basilica or these you know great anglican you know cathedrals it's though like oh that's where god's at that's his house god's like i'm not impressed by that god is not set to god is, is does not he's not interested in investing his glory in buildings of stone and steel and glass and gold he has chosen instead to seat his glory in and among his gathered people that's god's house that's god's temple in the old covenant right it was the spirit of god that filled the temple and made it holy it was just a building all right and so when god's spirit left he's like i don't care much for this building it's my glory that makes it special that's just brick and stone and gold and even the disciples were so impressed, right? The apostles, they go to the temple and they're like, look at how marvelous this is. Aren't you impressed, Jesus? Jesus is like, guys, there's not one stone going to be left upon another. Because God has not chosen to invest his glory in, in buildings, even nice buildings. But in his building, in his temple, which is the people of God. So when we, church, are gathered together, we are the place where God's glory is seen and glorified in the world. There's not a building you can point to in southern York County or in Rome or in England or in London or in D.C. or anywhere else and say, that's God's house. That's where God's glory is seen because isn't the artwork pretty? The place where God is seen and glorified in the world, where he is worshipped, where his favors and blessings are distributed, is the church, the people. When Christians are gathered in worship, whether it is in a cathedral or a gymnasium or a living room or a bomb shelter in Ukraine, that is where God has set his name and his glorious presence. So we are being built together, Christians, into a temple of a living God. We are his home on earth. John fourteen twenty three. this is such a sweet promise. Jesus says this. He says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word And my Father will love him. And we, Jesus is saying, me and my Father, we will come and make our home with him. Man, that's a beautiful promise. And Christian, if you're in Christ, that promise is for you. Just a reminder. As though we are scattered across the globe, we are being built together into God's eternal home. He has always desired to be among his people. He's always planned. All of his covenants have always been to the point of God with us. Guys, that's even his name. Remember, Emmanuel, God with us. That's his desire. And in Christ, 
you were being built together by the Spirit into a dwelling place for God. You see, you see the, the Trinitarian, um, all the work of the Trinity there. In Him, Christ, you're being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God is fully invested in this. So in Christ, you are, you are at home with God and His home is within you individually and especially corporately as the church. Let me move quickly here to, to 1 Peter chapter 2, if you have, uh, if you have your, your finger there. There's another passage that is related to this, when Peter is writing now, and he says this, But you are a chosen race, a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. There's a, there's a lot here, so I'm just going to touch on a few points as we're kind of continuing to look at our identity as God's people and relate to the temple of God. He, Peter uses Old Testament descriptions of Israel, and he applies them to the church. He says, we are a chosen race. In the Old Covenant, you could say Israel was God's chosen race or, or, or people group. But now he says, no, you're God's chosen race. Biblically speaking, really, you could say, well, in some sense, you could say there's one human race. But really, biblically, maybe there's two. Those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. See, God, God, God is saying that it, it, if you're in Christ, you're a whole new kind of humanity. No longer patterned after fallen Adam but after the glory of Jesus Christ. He is our new head. He says you are a chosen race. And it's not based on lines of color, language, ethnicity, or country of origin, but who you belong to. Do you belong to Adam or do you belong to Christ? And if you're a believer in Christ, you're a new creation, a new human being, a chosen race. He says that we are a royal priesthood, that each and every believer is a priest before God, offering spiritual sacrifices and worship to God. Each of us being gifted by his Holy Spirit in a variety of ways, as we talked about um, uh, recently, and uh, that God has given us his spirit to minister in his name. So we're a royal priesthood. We're a holy nation. Right, not located on the map, right, in one specific place, one country is God's country, right, but we are a kingdom spread out over the globe whose borders and boundaries are not fixed on a map. But where God's people, filled by His Spirit, led by His Son, are present, we are God's nation. And finally, I love this, we are a people for His own possession. God has always wanted to have a people that are uniquely His. And church, if you belong to Christ, you were part of his church, he says, you are mine. You are my unique people that belong to me. And I belong to you. So what does all this, this mean? I, we said a lot of things there about our identity, right? Well, God cares deeply for his people. That should be evident, right? God has a very high estimation of his people. He has chosen to reveal himself and give all of his best gifts and promises to those who belong to him in Christ. There are no people more precious on earth to God than his saints. Guys, even the least saint in the kingdom of God is more precious than the greatest of those who are outside of Christ in the world. 
His love for his family, his household, his holy temple is far greater than his general love that he does have for all of creation. Those who belong to him in Christ are his chosen and precious people. And I think we should keep in mind that I, I, I don't know what you are in the world. If, if, if you are wealthy, if you are powerful, if you have a great reputation, if you have a great life, if you're very comfortable, you may be great or you may be insignificant. You may have a lot of worldly goods, a lot of, a lot of financial freedom at your disposal, or you may have none. You may have great success or little. You may have great name and fame in our community, or you may be unknown. And you may remain that way for the rest of your life. It, it matters little. Because you are great in the eyes of our God. Precious, precious, chosen. You belong to his family, a people that will live forever. And that is your identity in Christ. You should cling to that. That should be your hope and joy, right? Before you had no, no hope in the world, you had no God in the world. Now you have hope, you have joy, you have the Lord. What else do you need? You belong to God and his people. And God has always wanted to be among his people, with his people. You know, it's, it's interesting, like, it, it, it seems like God took a really long time, you read the Old Testament, before he got around to building a temple, and it seemed like it wasn't even initially his idea. Well, of course it was, it's God, you know, God's sovereign, but he was perfectly content with a tent and moving around, right? And if you ever go, like, open the ESV study Bible, look at pictures at it, like, it's not super impressive. Like, maybe back then it would have been, but, like... It's not as impressive as your house that you live in. Because God, he says, God didn't need a glorious abode. We do. People like that. God, God wasn't, he, he just wanted to be with his people. And the tabernacle was mobile. Wherever God's people went, he went with them. And God was perfectly content to be there with his people. Guys, God does not need an impressive house to match his glory. God brings his glory with him. God does not need an impressive person. He doesn't need you to be this great, awesome, wonderful, impressive human being. You know, oh, you're not worthy for me to come live inside you, make my home with you. He says, God brings his glory with him. And God delights to make his home in people that maybe aren't that impressive in the world. Paul, Paul makes a point of that in the book of 1 Corinthians. He says, not many of you are rich, not many of you are wealthy or powerful or have a great name, but God delights to take the things that are not thought of well in the world, or slight, unimpressive in the world, and make them glorious because he brings his glory when he lives inside of us individually and as a church. God is not ashamed of his saints. He's not ashamed of his church. So as the temple of God, we do stand out in the world because God's glory fills us. We're not drawing attention to ourselves, but we're drawing attention to God. He's, it's all on him. We draw attention to God by our life and our work. So that, that's who we are. God's temple, God's household, God's building, God's priesthood. But that, that actually informs our purpose in the world, what we are supposed to actually do. Let's take a look here at, uh, at for, going to 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 5. We're going to summarize a bit of how this informs our church's purpose. Now, you can summarize the purpose of the church really in three things, generally. right? It's, you can say the church exists for worship, evangelism, and discipleship. 
I mean, you could kind of add, you know, like fellowship, and you know, you could add things like that. But generally, you can you can summarize down to these three categories: the church exists for worship, to delight in God, to sing praises to Him, to live lives of submission to Him, right? To celebrate baptism and the Lord's Supper together, to worship God. That is our primary calling. But then also to tell the world about Jesus, evangelism, but also to make disciples and to grow in faith and to strengthen one another and help one another to follow him. That's essentially what you could do to describe the purpose of the church. We're going to kind of take some of that idea, but we're going to summarize the purposes really with with an eye of what does it mean to be the temple and the household of God and how does that inform our purpose. Well, 1 Peter 2, verse 5 says that you yourselves like living stones are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So firstly, we exist. Part of our purpose is to offer spiritual sacrifices to God. Right? That, 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 that's what temples exist for, right? At least they used to in the ancient world. What are temples for? They're places for worship and, and sacrifices. Like, and that... Literal sacrifices. That's what the Old Testament tabernacle temple were for. That's what all, a lot of, happened in a lot of pagan temples and maybe still today where sacrifices were made. In the Old Covenant, that was its primary function, right? Animals were brought and they were killed and offered at the temple, right? Obviously, we look back and like, man, that's so gory and ugh. Yeah, because God was reminding his people, this is what sin deserves. And it was pointing ahead to Christ. But that's what the temple was all about. It was a place of sacrifice until Christ came. And then he fulfilled the purpose of the temple. All that was foreshadowing for Christ. And he is the Lamb of God who lays his life down. He is the final sacrifice that ends all sacrifices so that our sins are fully and finally paid for. Remember, we read that earlier. We are brought near forever by the blood of Christ. But the Spirit writing through Paul says that we are being built into a temple. And you might think, well, hold on a second. If we're priests in temples, you know, priests, you know, at the time, yeah, they teach and stuff, but they also offer sacrifices. Like, that's their job. It's like what they do. What, are we, what, what does that mean? Like, it makes you, you could imagine Paul's audience, like, wondering, well, what does a priest do if he doesn't offer sacrifices? What is this analogy supposed to lead towards? We are told, indeed, that we are priests, that we do offer sacrifices. However, he says that we offer spiritual Sacrifices, which means, as you can see, we're not actually sacrificing anything real today, anything physical. But we do offer something else that's even more precious. We're a holy priesthood who have nothing else to offer but our very lives to God. Paul talks about it this way in Romans chapter 12. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So what do, what, do, what do priests do? They offer sacrifices. We're a kingdom of priests. We're a holy priesthood. What do we offer? Well, you offer your life to God, spiritually speaking, but also in reality. You're not actually, you're not putting yourself to death, but rather you're saying, I'm living for God. God. Lord Jesus, you gave your life for me. I am wholly devoted to you now. God, take my life. Do with me what you will. Do you know what this means? If you want to summarize it in a phrase, what the Christian life, what it means to, to live as a kingdom of priests, it's this, that our whole life is one giant, your will be done. 
God has made us a people for his own possession who are not enslaved, but joyfully, willingly, lovingly say, God, you can have my life, all my dreams, all my wishes, all my talents, my time, my treasure, my heart, my body, my mind. God, it's yours. My words, my prayer, any influence, all of it's yours. Do what you will. Guys, that's what it means. We say this all the time. We teach it to our kids. Love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love God with all that you are. That's what that means. God, I'm going to be a living sacrifice. Of all the people in the world, we should be a people who say, God, your will be done in my life and through me. And it is a sacrifice. Because if you say, God, your will be done, you know what? Your will's probably not going to get done then, right? And all the things that we would like God to do for us, all the things that we, all the dreams we would like to have for our life, those may, they may, if God wills, they may happen, but they also may have to go to the wayside. But you know what sin is at the end of the day? It's really just a people who say no to God. No, thanks, God. No to your commands. No to your will. No to your glory. I'd rather not. I'd rather do what I want to do. So God says, I will have a people who say yes to me. I'm the God of heaven and earth. I will have a people that willingly obey to me, that willingly love me and submit to me. And that's what it means to be a people of God, living sacrifice. Galatians, Paul says it best in Galatians. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what it means to be a holy priesthood. We still offer sacrifices. But the sacrifice we give is, God, you can have my life. Do what you will. Here I am, Lord. Send me. Your will be done in my marriage, with my kids, with my dreams, with my job, with my ambitions, I'm yours. And as a church, can you imagine what that would do in the world? The power of that? If there's a people who gather together that in a unified voice say, God, your will be done among us. That's powerful. God might just be able to change the world with such a people. Titus 2.14 talks about our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. It's what God desires, a people who are submitted to him willingly, joyfully. He's not looking for slaves, but sons and daughters who willingly obey him. In a world where everyone lives for themselves and for their idols, God has a people for his own possession spread across the globe in every tribe, tongue, and nation who love him so much that nothing in this world can tempt them away from him. Once once we were without God in the world, now that you have him, you you don't want want to lose him. (laughs) So we'll gladly give up our lives to see the name of Jesus glorified. We live for him alone, offer ourselves up to him alone as a living spiritual sacrifice. And this is who we are. This is who God calls us to be. Christian, is this what you are living for? Hopefully, I, I, hopefully I was able to lay before you a really glorious understanding of what life could and should be for the Christian. Is that your life? 
What are you giving yourself to? Your life, your love, your attention. Teens, what are you living for? What are you sacrificing yourself for? Because I guarantee you, you are offering yourself up as a sacrifice to somebody, to something. Just imagine how our families, our neighborhoods, our community would respond when the church lives like the holy priesthood we are. Totally sold out to God and his glory. Peter continues on and talks about this. We, as, as priests, we offer the sacrifice of our life, but we also have this prophetic aspect too. He says that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are a priesthood who worships God, who offers our lives to him, but we are also a people that just talk about God. A lot. At least we should be, right? Sin is not just disobeying God, it's ignoring God, right? It's denying the excellencies of God. Sin, you know what sin mostly looks like? It's not always, I hate God, it's just ignoring Him. Remember, I talked about this earlier. Paul is writing and saying, Ephesians, before God, you were without God in the world. And you know what? Most of us didn't even notice He was gone. Because sin is just this ignoring of God's glory. He's, it's, it's this sense that he's not worth my attention. YouTube videos are worth my attention, right? But God, who made me in his image, he's not worth my attention. He's not that excellent. Sin seeks to discredit God, to deface God, to say that he's unworthy of worship or obedience. It's madness. As a people of God, we tell the truth about God. Right? As a people who know him, who believe that what he says about himself is true, our, part of our, our goal, our job as a temple of God, as a people of God, is just to set the record right, set the record straight about who God is. Right? We tell about a God who is creator, who is judge, who is sovereign, who is savior. We talk about his goodness and his mercy and his love and his power and his righteousness and his wisdom and his truth. We're Setting the record straight, God is and he is great and his greatness is unsearchable. God is our message. That's why Paul says in Colossians 1.28, him we proclaim. Him, that's who we talk about. Warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone in Christ, everyone mature in Christ. Him we proclaim. We're a people whose lives are so submitted to God who say, your will be done, that God, you're the message. We want to make much of Jesus in the world as a kingdom of priests. We're just echoing what John the baptizer said long before us. He must increase and we must decrease. Guys, in our world, there's, there's a whole lot of competing ideas and, and opinions. You may have noticed there's some opinions out there. Social media has only made this more apparent, I think, right? Everybody has a cause. Everybody needs to be an activist. Everybody needs to have some, some thing. They, everyone wants their voice to be heard. Of course, we, if you ever spend any, a lot of time on there, most of it's drivel and should probably be left unsaid. But Christians, we feel the pull too. We're like, man, everybody has a voice. Everybody's saying something. And I want, I want my voice to be important too. I want to, we feel that need to insert ourselves in every conversation, have an opinion about every little thing. And you know what? That's fine. Maybe God has called you to speak to a certain issue in our, in our society. But just know that the world doesn't really need your opinions probably, or mine, and would go on just fine without them. 
I've got my own social and political opinions, you do yours, but you know what? That's not why we came here. I've got my own views on art and media. I've got opinions on movies and music and this and that, but you know what? Who cares? That's not what the world needs. What the world needs is a people who will proclaim the excellencies of Christ amidst all the noise. Who will proclaim him and not yourselves. Guys, imagine if, we, imagine if you just took a week and you didn't post anything on social media. You didn't pitch, post pictures of your kids. You didn't tweet articles from news sources. You just posted like a scripture. Like once a day. For, I challenge you to do that. Let's just see what happens. Not that you can't use social media for other things, but I'm saying like Christians individually and corporately, like what's our purpose here? What does it mean to be the people of God? To proclaim Christ, him we proclaim. Like that's it. That's the message. You could spend your whole life talking about nothing else and it would not be a wasted life. You would not get the end of your life saying, man, I really wish I would have had something more to say on that comment board. I really wish I would have been able to share that meme. Like that's just not going to happen. May his praises and his excellencies often be on our lips and on our speech. What it means to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness to his marvelous light. Well, there's two aspects to it. One is that Christians do this for one another. This means that we tell one another about God often. There's just, you know, you know why life groups and core groups and uh, accountability groups work, right? It's because when you get Christians together and they start praying and talking about God, God does something pretty cool in our lives. We're teaching a theology and life course right now, and uh, we're actually finishing up in May, but we're just going through and talking about theology once a month. And early on, we were studying the doctrine of God, and I remember we had a little bit of a conversation. There's just a few of us gathered in this room just talking about the attributes of God, and we all kind of came to a conclusion like, man, we all struggle with different things. We all struggle with anxiety, and I know I struggle with anxiety, fear, sadness, heartaches, worries in the world, and how much would those be lessened if we spent more time just reflecting on the goodness of God and on his sovereignty and on his mercy and on his kindness and on his wisdom? Not that that's going to erase all of our problems, but maybe some of them would be seen in kind of for where they're at. You know, the, the things of this world, that this, the troubles and fears would, would kind of grow dim as we're kind of staring more at the goodness of God and finding more hope and joy in him. There's something about it when Christians gather together, when we're struggling to encourage one another in the Lord to bring a scripture to bear on someone's circumstance. Oh, that, sometimes that, that is the most helpful thing. It's just bringing God into the situation in one another's lives. That's what gives us a lot of times the faith that we need to get through things. To draw near to God together, to delight in his glory and in his word. So Christians, we, we do this, we proclaim his excellencies, when we just talk about God to one another, and I'd encourage you to do that, right? Just bring God to bear in one another's lives. But we also do this to the world, because we need to proclaim the Lord to the world. Because all around, there are people who are still strangers and aliens. Still without hope. Still without God in the world. But they don't have to stay there. Because Christ has shed his blood that they can be brought near. And that's the message. We go as a kingdom of priests. We've got in the world, we are commissioned people to go out in the world with Jesus' name on our lips and a your will be done kind of attitude, individually and as a church. So let us be a people that know and tell the gospel.
That God may call out even more people out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's what it means to be the household of God, to be the temple of God, to be a holy priesthood sent out into the world. I'm going to call the worship team up now. As they join us, um, we're going to go ahead and I'm going to send us out and dismiss us this morning. I'm going to pray for us. uh, And they're going to give us kind of our closing song. But let me pray for us as we close today that we would be the people that God has called us to be. Father, we just want to give you praise. God, we just give you glory and honor. When we look at the works of your hands, when we, when we, are, when we come into contact in your word with your great plans and your great mercy, God, we stand in awe of you. Lord, none of us in this room deserve to be here. None of us earned our spot. But Lord, we just confess that the Lord Jesus Christ, by his blood on the cross and his resurrection, earned our place. Lord, not only in this room, God, but in glory. The Lord, we have a forever home with you. God, because you have made your home with us. God, we are your family. God, I don't know. How on earth are we your family apart from the grace of God? Lord, you have called us sons and daughters. You have made us brothers and sisters. You have made us a kingdom of priests, a people for your own possession. So, Lord, I just ask that you'd help us. Fill us with your spirit. Help us to be living sacrifices. Lord, to say your will be done on heaven as on earth as it is in heaven. And we be a people who speak your name to one another and into the world. Make your name great through us, Lord. Thank you for your church. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Church, you're welcome to stay in worship, but send you out. Go in peace.